every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to the final Money Talk of the week on Friday, the 12th of January, 2024. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Taiwan is heading to the polls tomorrow to elect a new president and legislature. The election will be closely watched by the world for how it will affect the island's relations with China and the US. The presidential candidate for the Kuomintang, Taiwan's largest opposition party, which is in favour of closer ties with China, has excluded the possibility of talks with China on unification if he is elected. Hoyo Yi on Thursday said that a victory for the KMT would not allow Beijing to gain control over the country as it desires. He said he would not touch the issue of unification while in office. US headline inflation edged up in the year to December as the Federal Reserve deliberates over when to cut interest rates from their 23-year high. The annual consumer price inflation rate rose 3.4% in December from a five-month low of 3.1% in November, exceeding economists' forecasts of 3.2%. The annual core inflation rate eased to 3.9%, below 4% in the previous period, but above expectations of 3.8%. Compared to November, core consumer prices rose by a third of a percent, the most in three months, and above forecasts of 0.2%. The Bank of Korea left its benchmark lending rate unchanged for the eighth time in a row Thursday. South Korea's central bank held rates at 3.5% in line with economists' expectations amid a further slowdown in inflation, record household debts and growing credit risks associated with a local developer. 11 asset managers, including BlackRock and Fidelity, have had applications to launch spot Bitcoin ETFs approved by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. Bitcoin trading volumes surged 40% Thursday over the previous 24 hours after ETFs made a long-awaited debut on stock exchanges. Over three and a half billion US dollars of ETF shares have changed hands as of 1 p.m. in New York. On Thursday, Bitcoin was up 2% to just above $46,000, having risen above $49,000 at one stage. Ether was up almost 7% to $2,594 on speculation that, that Ethereum could be the next cryptocurrency to receive ETF approvals. On today's program, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of GEO Securities, and Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. I have a daily newsletter to accompany this podcast, which contains more business and finance news from across Asia. And you can find it by going to peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks closed almost unchanged as traders assessed inflation data that was higher than expected in December. The benchmark S&P 500 fell less than 0.1% to 4,780, with utilities and rate-sensitive real estate stocks dragging the index lower. Earlier in the session, the broad market index briefly traded above its record-closing high. The tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite was flat, settling at 14,970. The Dow eked out a gain of 15 points, that's under 0.1%, to close at 37,711. The KBW Nasdaq Bank Index fell 1%, ahead of quarterly earnings reports from the largest US banks later today. 
Trading in the bond market was choppy following the inflation data for December. The two-year Treasury yield, which moves with rate expectations, rose immediately following the publication of the data, but later reversed that move, leaving the yield at four and a quarter percent. That's 12 basis points lower from when the data was released. The 10-year dropped below 4%, losing six basis points to 3.97%. The US dollar index ended the day where it started, around 102.31, after jumping higher in an initial reaction to the CPI data, but then fading for the rest of the day. The yen outperformed, rising a third of a percent to 144.32 against the dollar. The Chinese yuan was almost unchanged in Shanghai at 7.1670 renminbi, ahead of inflation data and trade data later today from the mainland. Spot gold prices tumbled back below $20,020 on the hotter-than-expected CPI data, but then bounced back again as traders reassessed rate-cut expectations. Gold ended the session 0.2% firmer at $2,028 an ounce. Oil prices jumped Thursday after an oil tanker was hijacked by armed militia near the Gulf of Oman. The Brent futures contract for March settled 0.8% higher at $77.41 a barrel. Hong Kong stocks rose for the first time in 2024 yesterday, arresting a seven-day slump. The Hang Seng Index jumped 205 points, or 1.3%, to close at 16,302. It rebounded from a 14-month low hit earlier in the week amid mounting bets of policy easing from the PBOC, including cuts to the RRR. Gains were broad-based, with the tech index up 2.2%. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose a third of a percent to 2,887. The CSI 300 rebounded 0.6% from an almost five-year low hit on Wednesday. Doesn't look like that rebound in the Hang Seng is going to last very long. Futures markets pointing to a decline this morning of 120 points for the Hang Seng Index should start trading at around about 16,180. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. We've reached the end of the week, and let's welcome Francis Lerner, our regular Friday commentator, the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning, Francis. Good morning. And also joining us is Carlos Casanova, who's Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Happy New Year, Carlos. Good morning and Happy New Year, Peter. Thank you. Uh, Let's start with the Taiwan election. Taiwan's heading to the polls tomorrow to elect a new president and also the legislature as well. The election is going to be closely watched for how it will affect the island's relations with China and the U.S., the presidential candidate for the Kuomintang, which is Taiwan's largest opposition party, which is traditionally in favour of closer ties with China, has excluded the possibility of talks with China on unification if he's elected. Ho Yo Yi on Thursday said that a victory for the KMT wouldn't allow Beijing to gain control over the island as it desires, and he said he wouldn't touch the issue of unification while in office. And Francis, um, how significant is this election? I suppose a lot depends, doesn't it, on who wins? and how China reacts to that. Yeah, I think uh, for, for the general uh, public uh, in Taiwan, uh, I think uh, they have aversion to unification with China. And don't forget, Mr. Hao used to be a DPP member. Mm, he was, wasn't he? <laughs> yes, that's right. So, so which means uh, 
you you really have two DPP members running for office. Uh, 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 has you you lose and and tails you lose. So so it, it really comes upon that. Uh, uh, the uh, the Chinese government invested so much money on Kuomintang and, and ended up with a candidate that, that that's not favor of unification. It's really uh, uh, not the result that uh, uh, what China wants. And but uh, uh, the the general consensus is uh, the DPP will win again this year because uh, you have three candidates and then they miss the all. Professor or uh, split the vote uh, from uh, K- KMT, so which means uh, there's really little chance for the KMT to gain con- to win the presidential election. How, how do you think China will react to that? Well, I think uh, it it will further try to isolate Taiwan because uh, uh, when the Ma Yingjiu was uh, president, I think uh, China allowed. Uh, uh, Taiwan to have a diplomatic relationship with something like 25 small countries. Now it's down to almost something like 10 or something like that. So uh, 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 China will increase pressure on Taiwan internationally. Okay. I mean, Carlos, as well as obviously US-China relations, which is going to be a key focus in this election, maybe the key focus, of course, the, as always in elections, the economy, the local economy um, is a big issue as well. Last year, it was a tough time, wasn't it, for Taiwan's economy because of the slowdown in the, in the global semiconductor uh, cycle with, with less demand uh, last year for chips. But how are things looking going forward? That's that's right. So there are a few criticisms of the DPP when you if you follow the debate in Taiwan, um, one of them being the deterioration in cross-border relations, of course, um, a second one being, um, you know, the inc- increasing the mandatory military service time from four months to one year. Um, so that's where I, I am not with Francis 100 percent. I think it's actually um quite a divisive election and we might just end up having a hung parliament as opposed to a landslide victory from DPP like last year. Um, but this is something that concerns a lot of Taiwanese people because not everybody wants to go to war with China. Mm. Um, and the third the third is, of course, um, the fact that the economy has been rather sluggish. Um, part of the, you know, Xinan Xiang or, or new southern strategy that uh, TPP implemented, uh, started to implement eight years ago was to increase outbound foreign direct investment into Southeast Asian countries in the hopes to relocate some of the low-value-added manufacturing from China to Southeast Asia and then to reshore some of the high-value-added manufacturing back to Taiwan. For that, they needed to keep uh, wage growth pretty flat. Um, And so people are feeling that uh, wages haven't kept up with the pace of um, you know, inflation and also the rise in housing prices. And so this is one of the key criticisms of the DPP. I think um, that the semiconductor cycle has been rather unfortunate for them in terms of election timing, especially as we are entering a recovery in the global semiconductor sector. And we do expect the Taiwanese economy to recover in 2024, 2025 as a result. Um, but it is what it is. Unfortunately, it has been, a, a, you know, between COVID and the, and the weak semiconductor demand um, in the last two years, the economy has, has underperformed. And so I think that's one of the things that might drag on their support base for the election 
tomorrow. Uh, however much the DPP or any of the parties try to to wean the economy off of China, the fact of the matter is it, it's going to be almost impossible to do, isn't it? Taiwan is going to still be very dependent upon the mainland Chinese economy as well. I think it's not impossible, but it takes a lot of time. Um, so many companies, including Apple, have been looking to wean themselves off um, China. Um, and of course, Foxconn, a Taiwanese company, is in charge of assembling uh, most of their iPhones for, for Apple in China. Um, they have a plan to shift uh, capacity to India, about 10%, I think it is, by 2035 um, or something like that. So it is it takes a, lo- a long, long time. And even if they do succeed at doing so, 70% of iPhones will still be assembled in China by Foxconn in the next 20 years. Um, so we are looking at a very, very gradual sort of um, de-risking, if you may. I think that word gets thrown out a lot nowadays, um, as opposed to a complete uh, divorce in sort of uh, mm. e- economic ties between Taiwan and China. And Francis, one of the things that was noticeable last year, despite the, the slowing economy, the Taiwanese stock market was a real standout performer. It was one of the best performing markets in Asia, wasn't it? I think it was up about 27% uh, at the end of last year, only just behind Japan. I think, I think, I think that can con- uh, attribute to the success of the tech sector in Taiwan, especially uh, uh, TSM. Because uh, uh, somehow Taiwan emerges the leader for uh, manufacturing chips. Uh, they, they can manufacture the, the smallest chips in the world. Mm. <laughs> and that sector actually carried the Taiwanese economy. And uh, even though the, uh, 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 the global sales of, uh, uh, of uh, smartphones did not increase last year, but uh, Taiwan's share of the global business actually increase. So what you see is uh, the stock market doing quite well uh, in Taiwan. Mm. And of course, one of TSMC's biggest customers is NVIDIA, which is um, surging itself because of the demand for AI chips. Is this going to be um, a potential boost for Taiwan as well? Because Taiwan Semiconductor obviously manufactures those chips. So is it going to be a big beneficiary from the AI boom this year? Yeah, definitely. But don't forget, uh, uh, TSMI's uh, big customers also China. Huawei use uh, chips manufactured by, by TSMC. <laughs> mm. So, so you uh, uh, you can talk uh, all you like, but 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 the fact is that the the pocketbook says something else. Uh, Taiwan is very dependent on China for business and without China's business, I think the Taiwanese economy will go back 50 years, something like that. Mm. I mean, Carlos, is um, obviously semiconductors is a dominant part, the dominant part of Taiwan's economy. Is it? So I've heard some complaints, particularly actually surprisingly maybe from young people, that actually semi, the semiconductor industry is too big um, in Taiwan. And Taiwan <laughs> semiconductor in particular is so large that it drains resources from other parts of the, um, the economy. I mean, it gets, you know, the best graduates going to, uh, going to the, the, those companies. And, and that particular sector is there is there some truth in that do you think i think there is some some truth in that i mean i don't have the exact figures uh, uh, what percentage of taiwanese gdp is is derived from semiconductors but um do keep in mind that tsmc 
is uh, you know one of the most Im- important companies in the world. Um, it is definitely the, the most valuable company in Taiwan. And so inevitably, it is going to attract some of the best talent um, out of universities. Um, I would say that uh, TPP has actually, uh, to that regard, been trying to diversify um, uh, away from just uh, semiconductor, um, you know, up, upstream high value added design and then some, some assembly of like really small chips into other types of high value added services. Um, they've att- tried to attract the regional headquarter uh, for Google by offering subsidized electricity prices. Um, so they are trying to sort of within, uh, you know, the scope of, of tech and high value added services, they have been trying to diversify away from just semiconductors. And I think it is a, a strategy that will pay off, but it requires a little bit of time for us to see uh, those benefits. Um, and remember also that Taiwan, you know, is bigger than many European countries. And so it does have a very strong industrial base, especially around Taichung with plastics, um, also metals, uh, metal smelting. Um, so, so it is unfair to say that semiconductors is the only driver of economic activity in the island. So where does the new government, whoever that is, um, turn the, the economic focus after, after this election? If it wants to be maybe less dependent upon China, what does it look towards? Where, where does it go? Um, in all honesty, it will have to be, and you are seeing it with some of the rhetoric coming out of the KMT, right? Uh, they also saying a, a few days ago that the one country, two systems uh, is not applicable, a model that is applicable to Taiwan. Mm. Um, so I think it's an, going to have to be an extension of policies by the TPP. Um, you can criticize them as much as you want, but this reshoring of high value added manufacturing is actually the right strategy for them. Um, and then this diversification into Southeast Asia uh, is actually also the right, the right strategy to, to, to pursue. So I, I feel like it's going to be an extension of what we have seen in the past, which entails uh, that you are going to continue to see uh, large portfolio investments into Southeast Asia. Um, and also you will continue to see very stagnant wage growth in, in Taiwan. And fortunately for the Taiwanese youth, which is, of course, also one of the main constituents of the TPP. Um, but it is that or they become irrelevant or, or, or you know, they are not able to generate enough uh, jobs for, for the population um, at home. And, and, and so it, it is better to have flat wage growth than to have high unemployment, ultimately. So I think it's going to be an extension of what we have seen so far. This is a problem, isn't it, for Taiwan? It does have a reputation for, for low wages. It has a reputation for expecting people to work for free, basically to do overtime and, and not get paid for it. That seems to be the culture there. But young people in particular, um, very unhappy about that, obviously. But often you hear them criticize the wage policy in regards to their ability to access housing. So I think one uh, low-hanging fruit where they could uh, improve is to ensure that there is more affordability within the housing sector, increased supply of uh, social housing, for example, um, in order to address some of the concerns around flat wages. But they cannot afford to have uh, you know, a, a big increase in wages or a lot of those uh, semiconductor jobs would go elsewhere. Malaysia, for example, is positioning to, to, to capture some of those uh, high value added semiconductor jobs. So I think they have to keep things as they are for the time being. Francis, is there a risk that foreign investors, just as they're turning away from mainland China, may also see a big need a bigger risk premium for Taiwan as well? They see Taiwan now as becoming more risky to, to invest 
Yeah, yes, that's quite true. But but the fact is, uh, uh, some sometimes you don't really have a choice. Like uh, uh, in the semiconductor industry, uh, uh, you 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 have to go to uh, uh, ASML to buy the uh, etching machines and to buy uh, uh, photo machines from Japan. You don't have any other choice. Like uh, if you uh, uh, want to buy chips, you have you have to have them manufactured in Taiwan, Japan, or, or South Korea. There are no other places that uh, they have the ca capacity or the ability to make them. So I think uh, what we have is really a global uh, division of labor. And, and, and actually, Taiwan occupies a very critical uh, value chain in this manufacturing process. So uh, I think uh, 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 Taiwan should exploit its leading status in semiconductor rather than complaining about it. Mm. And what countries like the US are trying to do, of course, is to get Taiwan to, to build factories offshore in, in the US itself to try and reduce that risk and reduce that dependency. But, but how is that working out? Is it, is it going well? That, that is a long starter because US wages and social policies are, are really much too high. I think uh, manufacturing mm -hmm. costs in the U.S. something like more than double that of Taiwan. So uh, uh, although TSMC uh, said that they will they will build a big factory in Arizona, uh, and I I don't think it's going well even for Hong Hai. Uh, they, they, they were they were going to build a big factory in the Wisconsin, but I think uh, basically uh, Mr. Kwok killed it already. I think it's it's not going anywhere. And that's despite so, uh, all these big subsidies that the U.S. government provides to, to yeah. TSMC and Foxconn and others. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, it, because costs. Living costs in the U.S. are much too high, so you, so that translates into into manufacturing costs, which is uh, more than double that of that in the China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, or even Japan. So mm. I think, well, if uh, 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 so, so, so what we we you really have to go with the international division of labor. Uh, the U.S. is is good that uh, they are leading the uh, the world in the in innovation. Once that once they lose the advantage or that lead, I think uh, the, the economy really suffer enormously. Okay, well, we'll see um, what's going to happen over the weekend in this election. We'll be talking about it on Monday morning um, in Money Talk. In the meantime, let's turn our attention to the US because headline inflation edged up in the year to December, complicating the Federal Reserve's calculations over to when to cut interest rates, which are currently at a 23-year high. The annual consumer price inflation rates rose 3.4% in December from a five-month low of 3.1% in November. That exceeded economists' forecasts of 3.2%. The core rate eased to a two and a half year low of 3.9%, but that was also above expectations of 3.8%. 
And compared to November, core consumer prices rose 0.3%. That's the most in three months and above forecasts of 0.2%. Carlos, how much attention should we put on this report? Because obviously it's not the favoured measure of inflation, is it, that the Fed looks at? But nevertheless, is this showing that maybe inflation still isn't fully beaten yet? Or um, or is this, uh, are we talking about small amounts here in terms of the, uh, the misses on inflation? Yeah, so it's, it's not a core PC, of course, but the Fed is looking at all measures of inflation and um, the other side of the coin of the Fed's congressional mandate, which is unemployment, in order to calibrate its response um, in 2024. And unfortunately, the picture is quite mixed. So we are seeing some weakness in manufacturing. We saw the PMI uh, dipping into contractionary territory. At the same time, we are seeing sustained um CPI, which granted, take it with a pinch of salt because it's December, it's ahead of the commercial season. Typically, you do have an increase in in, in prices around the Christmas season, um, but that is also coincided with um, you know fewer applications um, for for unemployment benefits and some signs that there is resilient uh, strength in the labor market. So definitely, that uh, sooner uh, rate cut in March is is off the table. I think the market is still pricing a sixty nine percent chance, as you've mentioned of a rate cut, but in, in our opinion, it's rather unlikely. Um, we, we might see uh, a pivot take place in, in May or in Q2, um, but the risk here is still to, to the downside, meaning a later start to rate cuts and also fewer than the uh, four that are currently priced in by the dot plots or the six that are currently priced in by the market in 2024. So I think it's very relevant. Um, and I, I think uh, investors will be pouring through every single data point in the in the next few months to try to uh, assess exactly what their uh, asset allocation should be uh, entering this rate cutting cycle. So Francis, what does this mean for markets? Does this mean that maybe a March rate cut that the markets have been assuming is off the table? Uh, definitely. Uh, the uh, the, the uh, January, I mean, the December inflation figure does not take into account of the uh, the big detour around uh, Cape of Good Hope, Africa, because they will raise uh, they, they will raise the uh, 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 freight rates uh, from uh, Europe to Asia uh, by one hundred percent. So what what we see seeing is that actually inflation is ticking up in twenty twenty four rather than going down. So, so I think uh, uh, the prediction were too optimistic. I think I think you 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 will probably see the first rate cut, maybe in the second half of this year, because uh, uh, last night the Iranians uh, 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 took one of the tankers yeah. <laughs> in, in retaliation for the U.S. action last year. So. I think uh, the oil prices will sh- uh, shot up already. So you have all these uh, uh, various uh, uh, unfavorable factors. So I think instead of uh, inflation going down, you will see inflation going up in the short term. That means rate cut will be delayed for some time. 
Carlos, one, one thing that's quite encouraging, I suppose, is consumers, their expectations for inflation um, is coming down now. They're about a three-year low, I think they are, according to the uh, the New York Fed. That That is encouraging, isn't it? Because it's important that inflation expectations don't get embedded um, in, in consumers' minds. That's right. So inflation expectations are still to the downside. Um, the other factor that's complicating the outlook for us economists in the US is the fact that there is a strong base effect next year, which is going to help to keep some of those pressures that Francis was mentioning under control. Um, so in spite of you know disruptions to supply chains um, and, and in spite of um, you know, some of the issues surrounding the geopolitical risks to oil prices. Um, we think that this base effect um, will still enable um, inflation to decline to around 2.5% by the end of 2024. Um, that is remains above the 2.0% uh, uh, target that the Fed has, uh, you know, decided is, is, is there um long-term you know level of inflation mm. um but we are assuming that three percent is a new percent so if we see a deterioration in macro activities um uh especially on the manufacturing side we're assuming labor and consumption will remain will, will remain strong and and with this expectation that inflation is coming down uh, it should be the case but if we see a sharper decline in manufacturing um with this inflation trajectory heading towards a 2.5 percent uh, target by the end of the year, they should be in a position to pivot. But I totally agree with Francis. Um, it will be delayed and it, it won't be as, as rosy as some of the analysts in the market have started to price it. Okay. Francis, let me ask you about Bitcoin. The US Securities and Exchange yeah. Commission has approved now the first spot Bitcoin exchange yeah. traded funds. This is really a landmark event. 11 asset managers, including some big ones like BlackRock, Fidelity, um, have had applications to launch their spot Bitcoin ETFs. They started trading uh, today. Volume um, surged. Bitcoin volume was up about 40%. Yeah. Uh, there's been something like three and a half billion US dollars of ETF shares changed hands by about lunchtime um, in New York. Does this change the landscape for investing in Bitcoin? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, basically the SEC legalized it and said, that, well, it's okay for you to speculate. And uh, I think a lot of the uh, speculative money will go into Bitcoin. And uh, of course, the uh, bull said that the uh, Bitcoin will will rise up to one hundred thousand this year. <laughs> I, I heard, yeah, Kathy Wood was saying that by twenty thirty, she expects to see the Bitcoin price at one and a half million dollars per coin. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I, I I hope he's she is a fully invested. In Bitcoin, I, mean. I think she is. <laughs> I think she is. <laughs> She's been a big fan for for a while. For all my money, I will sell all my properties and put everything in Bitcoin. Yes, yeah. I mean, Carlos. Despite this, Bitcoin's no closer though to becoming a global currency, is it? It's still a long way off from that. Even though, even if this does encourage investors maybe to look more at uh, cryptocurrencies. I agree. I think what we are seeing is um, a reversal of some of the conditions that led to the decline in Bitcoin prices, um, the decline in US 10-year yields, the expectation that the Fed is going to start cutting rates. Remember that Bitcoin is a hedge against the central bank policy. Um, and so it is possible that we, uh, and also uh, an increase in geopolitical tensions, by the way, with the record election year, 
um, and everything that is happening uh, in the Middle East. So uh, we, we could see some upside um, to alternatives, um, Bitcoin being one of those. And so we do think that the current uh, environment might benefit uh, Bitcoin and other asset classes such as gold, um, coal, other defensive trades like that. Um, but it remains a very speculative bet, in my opinion. And of course, that um, regulatory headwind is still there. So it is not for the faint of heart. I wonder what this means for these Bitcoin exchanges, because um, I would have thought it's not great for them, because why would you go and invest now in a Bitcoin, put your money on a Bitcoin exchange where there's the risk of your wallet being hacked and losing all your money, or you forget your password and can never access it again, when now you can just go and buy an ETF? That seems to be the much safer route now. Yeah, definitely. That's a much safer bet because uh, when when you have uh, FTX, uh, the Sam Bankman Fry stealing eight billion dollars from investors, what, mm. who would want to invest in an, in an exchange and regulate the exchange at that? So I think uh, it's actually good news for the retail investors. Does it encourage Asian regulators, um, you know, to go and follow suit and start authorizing similar products? We know Hong Kong, for example, wants to be um, a, a center for, for cryptocurrencies, for digital assets. What does it mean for Asia? Well, definitely, they will give a big boost uh, to Hong Kong because China deliberately uh, uh, left uh, uh, leave a loophole for Hong Kong to go into uh, 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 cryptocurrencies and, uh, and virtual assets like that. And in no other place, place in China, you, you can do uh, virtual assets uh, uh, legally except Hong Kong. So mm. I think that is the road forward for Hong Kong to be a, to be a virtual asset center for China. Carlos, the SEC hasn't done this very willingly, though, have they? When you listen to their uh, press conference yesterday, they spent most of it talking about the risks of investing in Bitcoin, um, saying to people that this wasn't an endorsement of cryptocurrencies at all. You really got the impression that they almost didn't want to do this. Yeah, agreed. Um, well, it is a risky asset class. Um, it's an artificial market in the sense that uh, there's created scarcity and then and then investors pour in so i do understand uh the concerns however um there's a lot of uh demand and requests um to have a more transparent um investment environment um even within asia you know a lot of investors are asking about the digital um you know, assets, crypto assets. So um, it is inevitable that we will see uh, a more formal investment environment. And I think Hong Kong is um, definitely at the forefront of that effort uh, in the region. Singapore tried, but there were some some difficulties. So I think Hong Kong will likely take the lead um, and, and it hopefully should help with the business volumes. But it is a risky asset class. Um, and so I think people getting into it, uh, even if they're buying an ETF, have to be cognizant of those risks. Mm. Francis, before we go, let me just get your thoughts on the Hong Kong market. They, Hong Kong stocks went up yesterday, hooray, for the first time this year. Doesn't look like it's going to last very long, though, because futures markets are pointing back down um, today. But it's been a pretty dreadful start, hasn't it, to, uh, to the new, new yeah. year? Hang Seng hit a 14-month um, low, down about 4.4% now since the beginning of the year. Yeah. That's the worst start to a new year since 2005. Seems to be carrying on where we left off in to 2023. 
Yeah, I just don't see any end to the gloom and doom uh, carry over from last year because uh, if China's economy does not improve and if if the tax sector in China does not improve, I just don't see any chance for the Hong Kong market to rise substantially, say, to even 20,000. So I think uh, we, we, we will continue to short the market. And in the meantime, you've got some nice opportunities elsewhere, like Japan, for example. It's at a 33-year high. Mm-hmm. Even Japan, South Korea, even Taiwan and India and the US are much better bets. So, so this uh, smart money already <laughs> went over there already. So uh, just about everybody's leaving Hong Kong except for the old people. <laughs> Carlos, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, what could be the catalyst here to try and get a, a turnaround? Could uh, rate cuts in the US do it? Rate cuts in the US would help um, in the sense that they reduce the cost of capital in Hong Kong as well. Um, but I agree with Francis. I think catalysts on the upside are quite limited. Um, we have some big heavyweights in the index that um, you know will we'll see um, very low single-digit earnings uh, growth in 2024, um, you know, even with all of the policy stimulus and uh, uh, sort of lighter touch uh, approach to regulation. Um, and so what is happening is that you have investors that have underwater positions that will utilize any rally to diversify into new growth sectors, um, such as EVs in China. So that means that uh, by default, uh, due to technical reasons, there is going to be a ceiling on, on any rally in the Hansing index. Um, and I think it's something that will last a few years. Um, in order for us to see more sustained growth, you would you would have to see uh, basically a rebalancing of the constituents of the index with the new technology sectors, biotech, EVs, and these kind of names are weighing more than some of the older uh, growth sectors such as e-commerce. Um, so not anytime soon. Luckily for investors in the region, I agree with Francis, uh, lots of other markets are looking quite interesting. Japan, for example, uh, is the most exciting it's been uh, in many decades. Um, and India, where we mm. have, it's one of the few places in the world where this is a positive correlation between growth and total equity returns. And we are assuming that growth will remain high around 8% in the next 10 years. So, so that is a market where uh, we think investors should consider to strategically pivot um, whenever there is an opportunity, meaning valuations are look, look slightly more attractive. And of course, in the US, uh, the Magnificent Seven have driven most of the returns in 2023 looking a little bit overpriced. Um, but the AI theme continues and some of the software companies um, have um, uh, derated and are looking attractive and so could be potential beneficiaries of the next leg of this AI theme. So uh, there are a few opportunities out there uh, with the Hansen Index probably remaining a little bit more subdued this year. Well, fascinating times. And thank you very much for a very interesting discussion this morning. Have a great weekend. You heard there Carlos Casanova, who is Senior Asia Economist at UBP, and Francis Lun, who is the CEO of Geo Securities. I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby, and Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year and good morning to you, Peter. Thank you very much. Now, the um, annual consumer price inflation rate in the US rose 3.4% in December. That was up from the previous month. It was 3.1% the previous month. It was also above what uh, forecasts uh, economists were forecasting. Similarly, for the core inflation rate um, as well, uh, it eased to a th- to 3.9%, but also above um, expectations. I guess 
Um, this is signalling that inflation still isn't fully beaten yet in the US. Yeah, I think it's a fair statement. Uh, I think one of the governors, Williams, uh, spoke earlier in the week and he said that, you know, restrictive monetary policy is likely to continue until they're very much convinced that they've got inflation leaked. Um, this number didn't really have a huge impact on the market. There were some the swings and roundabouts, but it probably moved the the betting market, if and, and if I use the betting market being the futures market, probably took about um, you know the expectation of a March rate cut to sixty five percent from seventy percent or there thereabouts. I think, um, and uh, overall, I think it, it tempered a little bit of the enthusiasm that we've seen since the beginning of December, where you know Goldilocks has been the sort of favoured scenario for for the landing in the U.S. economy. Does this change the trajectory of rate hikes for the Fed? No, but it may be just it, it may not change the Fed's view, but it may change the market's view of the Fed. If if mm-hmm. that makes sense, <laughs> I think the market got market's probably a little ahead of itself, and maybe it's just tempered back to uh, you know the Fed have never really been so you know dovish to suggest that you know that the market should be imminently expecting a rate cut. I think they've been pretty. Consistent in saying they're pivoting towards three at some point this year, but I think the market got a little ahead of itself and a little excited. So I think it's probably more the market reacting rather than the Fed. It, it does, though, make it difficult, doesn't it, for a rate hike in March? Because if the Fed is going to do that, it's got to really start preparing the ground at this meeting at the end of January, um, because that's the last one before March. It can't just suddenly turn up in March and cut rates. But maybe it's a little bit difficult and a little bit early for it to start doing that in January. Yeah, my sense of it is it, it's a bit premature. You know, if uh, you know, and again, I'm not speaking for the Fed or have any insight. That's for sure. But I sense that you know they're, they're more likely to to hold hold fire for as long as they can. I think the the acceleration in a rate cut would be if they see the you know the economic data really slipping quickly. I they see some really soft economic data that suggests that we might be slowing much more aggressively, and it's just not happening. I mean, you saw jobless claims figures last night that were, you know, slightly better than expected. Um, the payrolls number was good. Um, the manufacturing figures seem to have improved somewhat on the on on the U.S. economy. So, so hard to see the economy is about to tilt into a, into a much sharper decline, which would accelerate the timing for the Fed. So, I suspect they'll they'll buy as much time as they can. So the the Fed has done a good job, I suppose, hasn't it, on on inflation since uh, what since when June twenty twenty two when it started raising rates. But but where do we go from here in terms of the inflation um, picture? I think it's probably uh, it'll be higher for longer. I think you know we were talking a lot last year. I think uh, throughout the year that you know if if, if for nothing we're going to see rates higher for longer. Now even with the cuts that have been forecast for this year, it's still going to keep rates uh, well above. I guess that you know maybe between three seventy five and four twenty five on the on the discount rate for the U.S. Fed funds. Um, so seventy five basis points this year probably is where the market's priced, um, and that's. That's probably the most reasonable expectation at this point in time. Um, and then I think the following year, another 50 to 75. So let's say one and a half percent over the next two years off five and a quarter puts you, you know, just under four percent, um, which is still relatively high historically. But um, that'll all be contingent on how, how the economy performs. And of course, we have got the this this CPI data isn't the Fed's preferred measure. We have got the the PCE data coming up before uh, the end of January as well, which uh, the Fed 
puts more seems to put more attention on, doesn't it, than uh, than this CPI data? Yeah, and I mean, you're getting a diminishing return um, on this data as you you know we've got the you know we had very high inflation um, driven by the supply shock. Um, and that's come off quite aggressively. So all of you know, all of the big moves in inflation have happened. So now we're sort of getting marginal improvements in the inflation readings. What they don't want to see is a spike the other way. Um, so they want to see, you know, even if it's flatlining a little bit, as long as it's not rebouncing. Um, and again, you've got other exogenous factors. You know, you've got uh, geopolitically, you've got oil markets, energy markets potentially being a little bit choppy. You've got this Taiwan election on the weekend that might have a you know, an impact. So lo- lots of things to look out for. So it's not just the economic data that we're keeping an eye on. I mean, that, that is where the risks are, isn't it, to the upside when you hear about um, uh, oil tankers uh, being taken over by uh, Iranian mm. rebels or Houthi rebels, then uh, that, it makes you realise there are still uh, risks, aren't there, on the supply side? Yeah, and I think if, if, if one thing we were talking to, you know, we feel that most of the really good news is in priced into equity markets. Hence, it's more likely to see disappointment rather than joy um, over the couple of months. So, you know, uh, not to say that we're negative, it's just that, you know, uh, the market's pretty well priced for everything happening um, according to plan. And that often isn't the case, as we know, having been in the markets a long time. So I think the market's probably needs to just be a little bit more tempered in its enthusiasm for Fed policy and where, where the economy's tracking this. And what about year. and what about inflation in Australia? It's down to um, a two-year low, isn't it, I think, around, what was it, 4.3%? Uh, yeah, well, 4.3% versus 3.2% in the US tells you the story as, as well. Um, we've got a We've got a target here that the RBA looks at at two to three percent. So four point three is still um, a fairly good number in terms of improvement, but well off the target. Um, as with um, the the more, um, I guess, the more studied uh, number for the RBA will be in at the end of the month when we get the quarterly figure, um, and that currently has inflation on a year-on-year basis over five percent. So we'll be certainly looking for something with a four handle to give a chance for the RBA to be on hold. Remember, the Australian economy is a bit behind in terms of cycle on inflation. And the risk here is that we have slightly more persistent inflation and that the RBA, given that interest rates are below the US interest rates, potentially could have to continue to hike. Um, Unlikely at this immediate point in time, but we'll be looking at that inflation data at the end of the month quite closely. And um, what about the markets? Um, we we had a big rally for the the last three months of 2023. Things came off uh, quite rapidly in the first week of the year, but now suddenly we're back up in certainly in US stocks, close to all time highs again uh, for the S and P 500. The markets still seem to be um, pricing in this Goldilocks scenario, don't they? Of um, of inflation coming down, but uh, the US economy not tipping into a recession and earnings growth continuing to hold up. Feels feels that way, you know. It got yeah. It was certainly a, um, an excellent month in December to finish off the year, and we and and the the new year has been a little more choppy, obviously due to light conditions as well, as um, as as plenty of people away on holidays, um, coming back into it. Uh, it's it's still looking fairly uh, structured. I think um, uh, at some stage, what knocks the, what knocks the the market off its of its confidence will be you know will be data out of inflation and and maybe an exogenous risk. So, at this stage, it's looking pretty good. Um, as I said, 
the market's priced for pretty much everything going well. So that worries me a little. So not surprised if we see some pullbacks at some stage. And earnings season starts today. The big US banks uh, kick off uh, with their reporting. How important is this earnings season going to be to uh, what the market does going forward? Definitely important. Uh, And obviously, forward estimates for companies will be the thing that will be looked at closely to see if there's any um, uh, decline, not only in the actual performance of the last quarter, but also um, the forward estimate. And I, th- I think I read somewhere, and, I, and again, I just uh, avoid being specific here, but Citibank, I, I gather, made some provision or expected to make some provision, quite large provision, on, on um, uh, in its books for its earnings results. So I'll be interested to see if there's some of the banks making some extra provisions for, for potential slowdown and, and higher default rates. So we'll be watching that data really closely uh, and particularly looking at the forward estimates. And if this rally is going to continue, we're going to see the S&P 500 move to all-time highs and and continue um, beyond that. Uh, what, what's got to happen to, to keep it going? Well, I think the scenario is that the, you know, we, we end up with so change from a soft landing to a no landing, i.e. we continue to grow mm. at, a, at a reasonable clip. Um, inflation comes off and, and rates start to, to, to come off. Um, there's no reason to suggest that that wouldn't lead to the um, you know, equity markets continuing to, to trade new highs. Um, Volatility is low, almost uh, you know, not at all times, but at historical lows. Um, all indications are at this stage that investors are pretty comfortable with how things are looking and um, they'll probably continue to buy it if, uh, because there's still a lot of cash on the sideline, right? Mm. Even if you're getting a good earn off cash, that's yet to be deployed. If there's a risk on view and the Fed start to affirm their view on rates, yeah, it could be a nice little kicker for investors to buy into equity risk. It does seem, doesn't it, that a lot of good things have got to happen all at the same time or or continue to happen at the same time for this to keep going. But I suppose so far, that is exactly what has happened. Well, you know, um, it's a world for optimists, I think, Peter. You know, you and I have been seeing a lot of things in our time and, you know, there's always surprises, but there's there's no reason right now not to be optimistic. You know, the parameters are fairly well set. Um, the big caveat on that is we just don't know what's going to happen, right? So mm. um, we're always mindful, but uh, on balance, it's looking fairly well structured at the moment and and, uh, and, and a good reason why the markets are trading where they are. Well, it's going to be a fascinating start to this year over the next few months. Look forward to talking about it more with you um, over the coming weeks, Toby. Thank you very much indeed. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investment. Providing a view from mainland China will be Yanan Wu, the Chairman and CEO of Surfing Group. And with an update on the Taiwan election will be Ross Feingold. Business Development Director at Safepo Group, Safe Pro Group in Taipei. Have a great weekend. Money Talk 